Well, beloved, open God's living word to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Peter encourages the church to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep their conduct honorable before the Gentiles. And that is what he has been giving instruction to, uh, the church to help us understand how we are to live in this world, how we're supposed to relate to governing authorities that are over us or bosses that have mastery over us or how we are to be submissive in, in the relationship dynamics of covenant marriage. He is talking about the inner qualities that should be evident of God's people. He's summarizing it here, and we're gonna talk today about what it looks like and how we relate to one another, and then also how we relate to a hostile world around us. And I, I want us to consider that this instruction that he's giving here is basic Christian doctrine. It's not for the extraordinary Christian, the super Christian, it's for every Christian. This is the teaching that Jesus gave uh, in the Beatitudes that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. It is the basic instruction for ordinary Christian living. And I want that to help frame our hearts today as we hear this passage. Because, beloved, where God has worked to regenerate our hearts, he infuses new life. And so Peter is describing the qualities that should be present in the heart because new life is there. Now remember, these brothers and sisters, they're in exile. Uh, they have been removed from their motherland and they are being treated unjustly in this land because of the name of Christ. And this is the instruction that Peter gives to them. This instruction fits all of life scenarios. It's basic and seems uh, extraordinary at the same time. But we want to recognize the work that God wants to do in and through his people and what we're called to. Uh, the main idea of this passage today is pretty simple. As God's people, we are called to live righteously with one another and to respond in doing good to those hostile. As God's people, we are called to live righteously with one another and to respond in doing good to those hostile. How are we to live in a world that is not sympathetic to the gospel? How are we to live out our life in a way that is honorable? Our conduct is honorable before the Gentiles. That's what Peter is instructing here. And so first, he, he's summarizing all of the teaching that we've been going through on submission over the last few weeks. And now he's going to show us how we are to submit to one another. And so we're going to look at the church first, and that's going to be the first point. And then secondly, we're going to look at how we respond to those who revile us, uh, those who do evil against us. Now, the first point is simply this. Live intentionally among one another. And we find this in verse 8. Look with me there. Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
So after he addresses these different groups in the church, notice what he says there. All of you. This is the command given to everyone. Everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. And now he's about to give a summary kind of of his thoughts in this. But he gives a command with kind of five adjectives attached to it. Those unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Remember what Peter has already said before we trickle into this passage. Beloved, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. We are the people on this earth who have received the mercy of God. We have been bought, purchased by the blood of Christ. This is who we are. And we have to remember our identity when we hear instruction that we're supposed to walk out in. And being born again, being caused to new life, since God has caused new life to fall upon us, there is new life that produces. There's new fruit that uh, springs up. And we actually can now be obedient. We actually are able to be faithful because we have been born again with imperishable seed. You remember that, what he said back earlier in the letter? The seed that has caused new life is, is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. And we are living stones called to act holy as God is holy. This is the new community of faith. And it does look different than any other community in this world. And so we're going to look at these five things here, and it's kind of set up like a chasm. So uh, the first and fifth are related, the second and fourth are related, and, and we're going to get to brotherly affection, which is the third one, in the middle. That's kind of where he's honing in on. But let's look at that first adjective there, adjective there unity of mind. That, that's, that means a same mind. The people of God are to think the same way about the gospel. We are called to think the same way as to the purpose of our living, which is the glory of God. We're, we're to think the same way about how we are to treat one another uh, in love. We're to think the same way about how we respond to hostility. If you remember back in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays specifically for this before he is arrested. He's praying first for his 12 disciples and his followers, and then he expands it to all of his people. And this is what he says. Father, keep them in your name, which you gave me, that they would be one. We are, as the people of God, supposed to have the same mind. Acts chapter 4, uh, all the full number of those who believe, this is how they're described. They had one heart, one soul, nothing belonged to anyone. They had all in common. They all believed and they testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the commonality that bound them together. And beloved, it's to bound us together as well. Think about your family for a second. Just the affection that you have for your family. Think about your traditions, uh, your culture, the movies you like, the language that you speak, all these little idiosyncrasies and picadillos that make up the, uh, the culture of your home. 
And then a child raises up and he marries another child and they have their own culture, their own uh, little commonalities. And then what happens is they get married and they try to fuse those together and it typically takes a little minute to, to get that done, right? The bottom line is this. Whatever family we're a part of, we are to have commonalities. And because we are a family of the same mind, our commonality is to be the gospel. And we are to agree on what that gospel is. We're to have shared minds in this. And now look with me at the fifth one, which is humble mind. uh, Because they're interrelated with one another. If we are to have the same mind, we're also to have a humble mind. Beloved, reality is disunity comes with inflated views of our individual self. When we, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, this is, this is pride. And it's the opposite of this humble mind that Peter is talking about. The best way to fight this is to stop comparing one another to ourselves. Uh, typically, we look to one another and we, we measure whether or not we are doing better than they are. And oftentimes, it inflates our view of ourself. But to fight this best is to constantly compare yourself with God. A God of mercy, perfect, profound love. The God who can create out of nothing. The God who holds all things together by the strength of his might. When we begin to view God this way, a humble heart begins to occur. A same mind can be ushered in. I love the Pilgrim's Progress. There's this scene at Little Ascent, I think it's chapter 56 or 57, where Faithful is moving ahead on his journey. And he's trying to outrun some, some people who are, are accusing him, some accusations from his past. And Christian is trying to catch him, and he's yelling for Faithful to stop. And uh, he, he finally catches Faithful. And when he catches Faithful, there's a vain grin that comes across his, his face as he's passing him. Because he thinks he's moving faster than him. He's doing better than him on the path. And immediately, Christian falls and trips And faithful is there actually to help him up. Beloved, one of the things we have to be mindful of is spiritual pride that exists in all of us. This is actually one of the great threats uh, to the church. We must do well to guard against this. We must do well to see it rise up in us and to confront it with the gospel. If we are giving into this, we are setting ourselves up for disunity. Now look with me at at number two and number four, sympathetic and tenderhearted. We'll look at sympathy first. These are emotions, so a little bit different than one and five. Sympathetic means to be stirred up. It means to be affected by the same things that stir your brother and sister. To consider what stirs them up. It's hard to be sympathetic when you are constantly thinking of yourself. But beloved, this is the basic part of church membership, to constantly live a life in which we are thinking of other people just as God has thought of us. Remember, we've said it before in Romans chapter 12, we weep with those who weep. Uh, You're in prison with those who are in prison. Hebrews 13, 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, 
we all suffer together. We are called to be near one another. We are called to open ourselves up to one another. We're called to draw near to one another so that we can know what's going on in each other's lives, so that we can actually learn to be sympathetic with one another. Another warning here is oftentimes we are close to one another in proximity, whether it's an ABF class or having dinner with someone, but we're a vault in the inside of our heart. We actually don't open ourselves up. We aren't willing to be uh, honest with one another. So we have to be sympathetic. We wanna be stirred in our emotions for the brothers and sisters that God has called us to do life with. We wanna listen to one another and, and speak the truth in love, as Paul says, to bear with one another, to care with one another. This is what it looks like to be sympathetic. We're also called to be tenderhearted. This also is emotional care for brothers and sisters. This is an inner disposition also of the heart. In fact, in the Greek, it means generosity in the guts or generosity in the bowels. Uh, like who you are as a person, you want to be tenderhearted towards another. Tenderheartedness longs to care for people, but also to reconcile with people where there has been infraction. This is kind of the meaning of tenderheartedness. And I think Paul hits it deepest in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. The goal of the gospel, to remember the gospel, is to remember God's actions toward us. So when we remember the gospel and, and things like sympathy and, and, and tenderheartedness, we remember that God has been sympathetic towards us. He's a, a, a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews describes Jesus. Uh, we see that he's been tenderhearted towards us in that from his bowels, he has forgiven us. He has cared for us. And this is describing the characteristics of the church. Do you want to forgive people? Do you live in such a way that is patient with your brother or your sister? Because we all need the patience that has been given to us. Do you give people the benefit of the doubt or do you draw quick conclusions and make quick decisions? If we are gonna be of one mind in the gospel of Christ and of humble mind, sympathetic, tender-hearted towards one another, we need to ask ourselves these things and recognize that the people of God are described this way. This is the, the expectation. This is the calling that the Father has for his people. And it all culminates in the middle with brotherly love. Philadelphia, where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is familial love. This is why he's driving it home for the church. Brothers and sisters might have conflict, but Paul tells us, even in the book of 1 Timothy 2, that we are the household of God. Different, unique. And Peter keeps talking about this brotherly love we're to have for one another. He brings it up in chapter 1, verse 22. He brings it up in chapter 2, verse 17. This is an important personality trait of the church to be these things. It, it, when the heart has been regenerated, this is what comes out of it. Do you love one another? 
We're called to love and to grow in love for one another in this body. But do you, do you love one another? And I, I recognize that it's impossible to love everybody equally in a, in a congregation this size. But, but maybe if I could just drive it closer to home, are, are there three, four, five people in this con- congregation that you love like a brother or a sister? Uh, that you have opened yourself up to and you're willing to hear what they have to say to you and you're willing to lay down your life so that they would look more like Christ. This uh, is the kind of the, the culture of the people of God. Uh, again, remember, this is basic Christian doctrine. This isn't super Christians. This is the church on display. Coming to church on a Sunday and, 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 and being in the gathering is wonderful. We're gathered around the word of God, singing praises to God, encouraging one another. But it's not adequate to walk out some of these practices in community. Be connected. Be here. Recognize that the church isn't a singular event where you come and you go, you lay down your life. Because Christ's name is attached to us. And we bear his name. This is what the church is called to, unity says in Matthew chapter 12 that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So there's a real threat to the congregation when these things aren't practiced and the spirit of God is not running through us and we are walking out things in sinful behavior. Perhaps some of you have uh, children and you've had a child who has come to you and asked one thing, and, and then the child went to the other parent and asked the same thing, and you both gave different answers. Well, in that moment, the house kind of folds, right? Who, who, what is, what, what's the culture of the home? We have to agree on what the things of God are, and that is supremely important. And notice in our passage in verse 8, before Peter gets... Before he gets to repaying evil for evil or or reviling for reviling, he actually deals with the deep down stuff in the heart. He's dealing with it. He, He knows that we totally need to be reworked because in our flesh, we cannot live this out in our old nature. But in our new nature, we actually can as the people of God who are made new. So, so how do we obey the command to change at this deep level? I think that's, that's, that's the natural question that pops up from this text. And it's not just a, you got to do this, but, but we, we need to return to God and be refreshed by God if we're going to be a community that practices this all the time. Uh, Peter has already provided applications throughout his letter to obey this command. So I'm going to bring those back up because I think that's best rather than just giving ideas myself. Uh, the first and, uh, first and foremost, and we're going to see this here in verses 10 and 11, uh, repent of your sin. Look what it says there in 10, 11. Uh, keep, your, uh, keep your tongue from evil and keep his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Repentance is the first step. Recognizing that this doesn't happen unless uh, we, we, we put our minds to this. And what keeps it from happening is actually our own sin that gets in the way. Uh, I know we talk about repentance often, but 
But, I, but and, and it's turning away from sin. I, I think we all, most of us know that repentance is turning away from sin, but, but sin actually stops us where we are. Sin, sin makes us see that we have transgressed, is trespassed a holy God. Uh, it, so you can't turn around and you can't go another direction unless you have stopped in the direction that you are going. So an, I, I think a natural question to ask is, are you broken over your sin? Uh, broken over the sin that has caused disunity in this church or with a family member or with someone you love? Are you able to see this? It's appropriate response when we have offended God with our sin. And we are called to this. And I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 51 today and see how David repents and see if those practices that David is talking about is a part of your life. If your sin stops you as you marvel at the holiness of God. And then related to it is to come back to Christ, 1 Peter 2. Uh, Verses 4 and and 24, we've talked about this. As you come to him, a living stone, so you repent and then we're to turn back to Christ. We are to turn to Christ. We are to remember that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Verse 24 of chapter 2. That means our sins are blotted out. Uh, That means he cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness. And as Paul says in Romans chapter five, our faith actually makes us righteous or our faith in Christ is actually what makes us righteous as he imputes his righteousness to us. Faith is something that we cannot do on our own, but faith is given to us by God. So all the work of salvation belongs to God. So we repent of our sin, we're broken over our sin. We recognize that we don't keep this community intact in our carnal nature. We turn to Christ. We remember that he bore our sins on that tree that we might live to righteousness and die to sin. The third thing I think of is that we're supposed to chew on the gospel. Do you remember how Paul, or excuse me, Peter talks about in chapter two, two verse three, that we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, that we are to be nourished by it, We are to return to the gospel over and over again, to chew on it, to not get over it, to be near it, to linger on it, to think constantly over it because the bottom line is this, our minds create sin so quickly. And so we need the companion of the gospel. Have you tasted lately and seen that the Lord is good? Have you remembered the mercy that the Lord has given to you and has it encouraged your heart? Has it made you wanna move away from the natural flare-ups of the human heart? Be motivated, beloved, by God's tenderness to you, his sympathy towards you, his brotherly affection that's been applied on you because of Christ. This is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. You cannot live this life as a faithful representative of the King of kings and the Lord of lords if this isn't present in your life. And if you're not chewing on the gospel. And then he also tells us in verse 12, this passage that we're in right now. 
He reminds us that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he hears our prayers. His ears are on us. This is the fourth thing I want us to consider. Ask for the Lord's help. How often do you pray realizing that he hears the prayers of the righteous? You can't be righteous on your own. You are righteous only in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. But how often do you say, God, help me? God, 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 change my heart. God, take out of me a heart of stone and put in me a heart of flesh. Create in me something that is not there. God, please do your work inside of me. God, unite me with my brother or sister who I'm not like. Uh, God, give me a tender heart. God, increase my sympathies. It is not true that that, that, that nobody ever changes. That's kind of an idea that's thrown out there. The Spirit of God, through the work of God and the power of God, actually changes us to be these things towards one another. And then finally, put on the mind of Christ, which is found in chapter 1, verse 13. It says, to prepare your mind for action. Are you convinced? I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to drive this home. Are you convinced that what he's describing in verse 8 is what the people of God are called to? Are you convinced of that? Are you willing to walk in it, to live this out together, to delight in in the Lord as our rest, uh, to, to remember his gospel and then to obey it together? Secondly, live intentionally among a hostile world. So now he kind of changes direction here. And the question that needs to be asked is how do we handle the hostility of the world? The church is persecuted. The people of God are hated. They're ostracized. The world jeers the Christian faith. Those who bear the name of Christ, as he's going to say in chapter 4, verse 14. So he's making sure that the community of God is remembering the gospel, and then he's encouraging the community of God to respond faithfully to a hostile world. And and notice what he says there in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This this means that Peter understands the human heart. He understands the natural man that reviles quickly back. Uh, This is exactly what he did when a little girl accused him of following Jesus. He, He cursed her. Do you guys remember this when he denied the Lord? He knows this. I was standing in line the other day at like this really fancy juice store just to get a juice drink. And I was turned and I was looking at uh, the menu and someone, as I was turned, just went around me and stood right in front of me in the line and ordered the drink in front of me. And I turned and you guys, what was in my heart was, who's going to throw a flag on that? Like, (laughs) who, 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 Did anybody see that? This isn't right in the world. This isn't. My point is, what is in the heart must be recognized. And Peter knows this. And this is why he's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Do you guys remember in Luke chapter 9, James and John? uh, And they're bearing the name of Christ. They're with Christ. Uh, They're traveling through Samaria. And Jesus is wanting to stay in a Samaritan village. And uh, the Samaritans won't let the Lord Jesus stay there. And James and John, thinking that they're defending the Lord himself, say that they want to call fire down from heaven to kill those who have rejected Jesus. 
And do you know what Jesus does? He turns and he rebukes them. And this isn't the way that the gospel is lived out. And so when he kind of gives us these, this command, we have to recognize that it's actually in our heart to revile, to, 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 to defend, to pay evil for evil. But look what Peter says there again in verse 9. But on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called to. Completely different, right? We bless them. And bless here means that you desire God's favor on them. That you want good for them. That you begin to pray mightily, God, work in their heart. Even if they despise me or if they despise you, God, bless them. Forgive them. They know not what they do as Christ prayed upon the cross. This is what we're called to as basic, ordinary Christians. Carrying out the gospel command. And this is the instruction that Jesus gave to Peter and the other disciples in Matthew chapter 5 and and in Luke chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Did you hear what it said at the very beginning? To those who hear. To those who hear what he's saying. Recognizing that this is the basic Christian instruction for the basic common Christian life. It says just before that, that you are blessed on account of the Son of Man in Luke 6. And if you are blessed on the account of of the Son of Man, we then can be a blessing. And this is what it says at the very end. And this is what you're called to. This is what you're called into. This is what we have been bought to live out together as Christians, and there's kind of two motivations that Peter puts out, just kind of wrapping up our, our look at this text. Uh, look with me in verse 9. The first one of the two is this that you may obtain a blessing. Now, he doesn't tell us immediately what that blessing is, but if you look at verses 10, 11, and 12, we find out more of what that, uh, that blessing is. Peter uses Psalm 34, which is David's psalm. Uh, it's, it's, out, it's actually an old catechism or an old instructional discipleship guide uh, for the people of God. But look what he says in verse 10. This is, shows the connection, that little word for. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, many question whether Peter is referring to obtaining a blessing in this life, which you see that little phrase, and see good days, that would be the blessing. Is he talking about the earthly life or the heavenly life? And we would say that both of those are true. Uh, we already know in this letter that he wrote about the inheritance that we are going to receive. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us, guarded by God in his power through faith. And so knowing that that's our inheritance, that should motivate us to live faithfully 
in this life. But if you look at the text, it seems to be that he's also talking about the days in which we live today. Our actual living in this life. Keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil. That repentance. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue this. And he will see good days. That means you... He, 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 will, he will receive a blessing in this life. You cannot live at peace if you're lying. Uh, you cannot live at peace if you are lifting up yourself and not being humble. Uh, we try to manage all of our uh, actions in the flesh, and it brings about total destruction within us, and it actually lays upon us the opposite of peace. But there's a peace when we don't slander. There's a peace that happens when we don't revile in return. Peace in relationships, knowing that we are doing what we can do despite their actions against us. And if you remember, church, Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through Christ's work and justification. Peace, if you remember in Galatians 5, is the fruit of the Spirit when we let the Spirit of God rule our lives, we are called to live at peace and, to, and we'll see good days and, and to bless. No matter what the world around us is doing, no matter how they're treating us, well, look at the second thing that gives us encouragement. For the eyes, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to the prayer. This is the second motivation as to why we don't need to revile. We don't need to do evil. But we can bless those who curse us. We can bless and not do evil because the Lord is watching us. Look what it says. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That means he is aware of our needs. We, we, he knows when injustice has been done against us and we're weeping over it. He, he knows when we're being persecuted for his name's sake. He, he knows this. Uh, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over evil and good. So, Psalm 56 says, He keeps count of your, listen to this, beloved. Keep, he keeps count of your tossing. He puts your tears in a bottle. He is for you. His eyes are towards you. Because when he sees you, he sees the sun. So in, even in the middle of whatever is being brought against you, remember that his eyes are upon you. And this encourages us to do good. He is watching when we bless and we do not revile, but also his ears are attentive to us. He listens when we pray. He attends to our prayers. He wants, to call, he wants us to call upon his name. He wants us to appeal to him. He wants us to cry out to him. It says in Psalm 68, he says, he longs to bear our daily burdens. Do you cast your daily burdens at the feet of the Lord? Because his ear is attentive to the righteous. Do you cry out to him? Do you call him in times of need? Do you call him for anything that happens in this life? Do you believe that he actually hears you, church? We are motivated to pray and to do good because we believe God sees us, because, because we believe that God hears us. But notice that warning at the very end of the passage, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is such a stern warning. 
Those who do evil, the face of the Lord is against them. Against them. Uh, He is against those who do evil. That means to you. He's against them. In fact, the psalm that he's quoting for from here, this Psalm 34, what's not recorded here in this passage is the fact that God says that he is going to cut off the memory of those who are against his holy ones. God will bring justice, it is certain. And because he will bring justice, therefore, we can do good when evil is done to us. We don't have to repay, we don't have to revile. We have received already the mercy of God, the blessing of God in the gospel of Christ, and therefore we can do good. Think of the last time someone said something against you or did something against you. How did you respond? How did you respond? Did you argue with them that you were right? Have you settled in your heart that your Christian duty is to bless and not revile? Has this been agreed upon in your heart with God? This is basic Christianity. And the temptation is to make an excuse. Well, I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. I don't want us to make an excuse where Peter gives us an instruction and where God makes for us a provision. Through Christ's blood, through his word, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, which is sanctifying us. Just a couple things to consider in closing. When you feel tempted to sin, to revile in return, or to do evil back, or to not live in unity with one another, I love what Baxter says. He says, meet it with an army of graces. Just an ocean of all the mercies of God lavished upon you in Christ. Uh, Do you find zeal for things that are righteous when you recognize God's zeal for things righteous? Uh, Do you remember the mercy of God that has been given to you? Do you desire to love God because he first loved you? A great way to fight temptation is to have an army of graces lavished upon you. Run to them. Remember them, bury them in your heart. Put the word of God in your heart that you may not sin, the word says. Number two, again, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is Psalm 34. He quoted this earlier in chapter two, verse three. Because when we taste and see that the Lord is good, we constantly go back to that nourishment, that that wonderful gospel that he, he has just given us in this word to feed us and to remind us of who we are, uh, the brokenness of our sin and the consequences of it and, and the direction that we would be heading in our sin had God not stepped in providing his son and taking our place for us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Wake up tomorrow morning, Monday, with the week ahead of you and taste and see that the Lord is good, that he will help you This will help you fight temptation when you resolve in your mind to walk these things out faithfully. And then three, labor for a clear understanding of God's will that you do not delay in obedience. Labor for a clear understanding of God's will that you may not delay in obedience. This is really 
tethered to number two, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have tasted and seen that he is good, that he has forgiven you of all your trespasses against him, if you have tasted and see that the Lord loves unconditionally despite our constant sins that are happening against him, and, and, and yet we see clearly because the spirit of God has given us the ability to see that we can live righteously in this world as we bear his name. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Labor to understand the will of God. Beloved, you can say no to a repayment of evil. You can. It is possible it is possible to be faithful. You can bless and you can genuinely want someone to feel and understand and experience the mercy of God in Christ who is against you. Do you appeal to God for this? Do you entrust yourself to him? Peter is asking us, as my old pastor and mentor used to say, to exercise holy effort. This is not in any way to earn your salvation. This is in every way because you have been saved. You have been saved. Remember, he is writing to Christians who are awaiting the return of Messiah. And he's teaching them that before you receive your full and glorious inheritance, do good, bless, and do not revile. At the very end of Psalm 34, it says this little um, psalm that Peter is using. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's us, beloved. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Have you taken refuge in Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted him? That's how you enter the people of God. You will perish forever in a very real place called hell. And this would be the outcome of all of our lives had Christ not stood in our place for us. If this was not our reality, if he decided he was not gonna bear our sins in his body on the tree, and the reason he did that was yes, that we might be saved from the penalty of sin, but that also we would be saved from the power of sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Are you aware that your sin is a crime against God which stands against you that you're charged with before the bar of God? This is the reality of every single person because sin is in all of us. But the righteous who have trusted in Christ been infused with the power of the Spirit, we can begin to walk faithfully as the Lord allows us to do so. If you are not a Christian, how do you reconcile this? Do you actually think it's possible to live a life where you don't repay evil? Where, where, where you don't respond in a way that seeks your own justice? My encouragement to you today would be to consider the gospel. 
Consider the gospel of grace that we've been talking about, that God can actually change people from the heart. It's a slow process. It's a slow change. In fact, it's described as one degree of glory to another. Do you ever feel just like you're just very slow in this change? It's a part of the Christian life. But we strive forward faithfully. Consider a God, if you're not a Christian, consider a God who, who loves sinners and forgives them of everything that they've ever done if they turn to him and trust his provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne. God, we cannot implement these things in our flesh. We just can't. So we appeal to you, Father, trusting that you cause new birth, new life in our hearts. God, would your spirit who sanctifies us, as, the, as this letter says, it's sanctifying us, God. Would you allow these things to begin working themselves out within us more faithfully? Would you help us to put a sin aside and, and to put on the righteousness of Christ? And first, how we love one another and how we respond to a hostile world. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.